0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. And I'll read from Genesis chapter 8, 1 all the way through to chapter 9, uh, verse 17. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him on the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, and he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's hearts is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Teem on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's good and perfect and inspired word. Let's go to him now in prayer and ask for his assistance. Our Father, we do thank you for this time. You have graciously allowed us a moment to come together as a body and to now hear your word. It is light to us, God. And we pray that for each of us who seem to perhaps be walking in darkness, Lord, Your Word would bring light to that darkness. That Your Word would pierce down into the darkness of our hearts, revealing to us those areas of our lives where we need to repent, encouraging us to cling more tightly by faith to our Savior Jesus Christ, and reviving us, to worship you, our living God. Father, we pray now that you would bless this time to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of months ago, Keith Kaufman preached on all of Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. Uh, It's an excellent sermon. You can still go back and listen to it on our brand new website. Check that out. Uh, But if you remember, Keith wonderfully pointed out that this whole section, this entire passage was written by Moses with a structure in mind. The shape of how the whole story is put together indicates a precision and intentionality in what Moses is trying to communicate. We've seen that a lot already throughout Genesis, where it's not only what Moses is saying that it's important, but it's also how Moses says it. What's the structure of the passage, and and what does that structure tell us? As we continue to read Genesis, I think we'll continue to see that the structure of any given passage tells us a lot. But the entire flood story really breaks apart into two halves. We looked at uh, and examined the first half last week with chapters 6 and 7, and we just read the second half this morning. The first half, which describes the beginning of the flood and the 150 days it took for the flood to rise, that story is like a kind of decreation story. Do you remember the beginning of God's creative work in Genesis chapter 1, where God brought order out of a watery chaos? Well, here in the flood, we see God, in judgment, bring his creation back to that original watery chaos. But the second half of the flood account What we read this morning, we see another 150 days for the waters to recede. And this part of the account is kind of like a a recreation story. God is bringing order again out of chaos, starting over with with a new humanity through Noah. Here's what I want us to see first this morning. What Moses seems to be doing is taking these two parts and structuring them in a way where they mirror each other. This is what's known as a chiasm. Part one and part two fit together like two mirrors. So look there, back at chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. There, do you remember, Moses describes how God resolves to destroy a corrupted humanity? But then turn over to chapter 8, verse, verse 20 and 21. What do you see there? There, God resolves to not destroy humanity. But back in chapter 6, verses 14 through 22, we see Noah build an ark in obedience to God. And then turn over to chapter 8, verse 20. Now Noah builds an altar in obedience to God. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, the Lord commands the remnant to enter the ark. And then in chapter 8, verses 15 through 19, God commands the remnant to Leave the ark. Then, back in chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, we see the, the flood begin. Whereas in chapter 8, verses 7 through 14, we see the, the flood begin to recede. The earth dries. Then, look there in chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. Moses gives these kinds of numerical markers. The flood continued for 40 days in verse 17, and, and then in verse 24, we see the waters prevailing for 150 days. But then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, we see the exact reverse. Verse 3, the waters were abated after 150 days. And at the end of 40 days, Noah looks for dry, uh, dry ground. And do you see what Moses is doing here and how he structured this whole passage? The whole account is mirroring in on itself and our focus is meant to be drawn to where the two halves meet. Right there in the center. Chapter 8, verse 1. That's the heart of this whole account. And what do we read? But God remembered Noah. That's what Moses is trying to communicate. Right in the middle of this account of God's destructive judgment, right in the heart of the chaos of the flood, we read but God, and God is there, and and Moses highlights his particular grace, right? But God remembered Noah. He's not saying God forgot about Noah, and then at a later time, like, you know, suddenly realized, oh, right, Noah, and that, that ark. Let me go back over there and kind of deal with him. I hope he's still all right in that floating log cabin I told him to get into. No, God being God, who is outside of time and sees all and knows all in his atemporal and eternal position of omniscience, was in complete control of Noah every second of every day. Every wave that crashed against the ark was a wave under the eternal guidance of God's providential hand. Not a drop of water could leak into that ark outside of God's sovereign control. So when we read, but God remembered Noah... We're not reading about God's forgetfulness. It's an absurdity that doesn't exist. Now, Moses is using this language here to communicate to us the special and relational focus God is now going to exhibit towards Noah. When we read that God remembered Noah, we're reading about God's special grace now taking shape in Noah's life. Thanks, Tim. You can turn that off now. Later in Genesis, we'll read of God remembering Abraham in order to save his nephew Lot. Moses will write that God remembered Rachel, thus bringing about her ability to conceive and and have a son. The language of God remembering is the language of God acting on behalf of that someone in focused grace. What's fascinating to me is that that same language of God remembering here is used again right at the very end of our story. Look there in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. See that? What's the outgrowth of God's remembering grace towards Noah? What's the evidence of God's focused remembering? It's this covenant that he reestablishes with him. Look how God describes that covenant in 9.15. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. He says the same thing in verse 16, right? When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. In other words, this language of remembering not only ties the whole second half of this flood account together, bookending it in 8.1 and 916, but it it's also language to communicate God's covenantal grace. Those who are recipients of God's grace are people who are remembered by God. That idea has profound implications for how we not only think about our world now, and we'll look at that later, but but also it has bearing on who we are in Christ. As we read earlier, uh, Kevin read earlier from us, uh, for us Isaiah 54, remember? Where Isaiah talks about a covenant of peace that will be just like the days in Noah. Now that chapter, Isaiah 54, comes right on the heels of Isaiah's famous chapter 53, which promises a coming Savior, remember, who would be pierced for our transgressions, who will be crushed for our iniquities, and upon that Savior, God will pour out His wrath in order to bring us peace. What Isaiah is doing is he's, he's pointing forward. He's prophesying about the forgiveness that will be found in Christ and that new covenant enacted in Christ. In Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, there will be a covenant of peace and that peace will be just like what God did with Noah. He'll remember us and, and swear to us to no longer pour out His wrath upon us. In a very real sense, the language here of God remembering Noah points forward to a greater grace that was still to come in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God will now forever remember those who are under his covenant of peace, those who trust in the Prince of Peace. You see, when God's final judgment comes, this time not with a flood of water, but with a final flood of fire. And all people at last will stand before God's judgment throne. In essence, all believers, Christians, will have Christ right there with them, saying, Father, I died for him. I died for her. I took their punishment. And the Father will say, yes. Yeah, I remember. I saw their sins on you, Jesus, when you were hanging on the cross. And he'll look at you and he'll say, welcome child, your sins are forgiven, I remember you. As Noah floated through the sea of chaotic judgment, it wasn't necessarily the ark that saved him. No, fundamentally it was God's gracious remembering. Noah was fundamentally no different than the mass of humanity who was perishing around him in the flood. And friends, you and I are also fundamentally no different from those who will perish in the last day in God's judgment. Now, Noah, Noah was a forgiven man simply because he trusted in God's promises. Remember we saw that last week in chapter 6, verse 9, where it said Noah walked with God? That meant that Noah was a man who believed in God. Noah was a man who trusted in God's promises. And God counted that faith, that trust, as righteousness to him. So it will be for those of us who trust in Jesus Christ. By faith, we too will be counted as righteous. And God, even in the midst of him pouring out his full, unmitigated judgment and anger in that last day, just as Noah found safety in the ark, we who find our safety in Jesus will be remembered by God. I think that's what Moses is highlighting here. God's saving grace. I want to hasten... Here And and, and remind us of how important that is. How essential it is to remember that God, in His grace, remembers us. In our day-to-day lives. We come here on Sunday mornings. We read and then we hear about these amazing instances of God's grace towards men and women. Indeed, we're, we're hearing God speak to us right now in and through His Word. But how often does it happen when we go back out into the work week or when we go back out into dealing with demanding toddlers, or we experience yet again the heartache of of very painful relationships, tough choices having to be made, whatever it is, and it seems that God isn't remembering us. Did we not just sing sing that from Psalm 22? My, My God, my God, oh, why have you forsaken and abandoned me? Why are you far from giving help, from listening to my anguished plea? My God, I cry today to you by day. You do not hear when I complain. I call to you throughout the night in silence. I cannot remain. Notice the detail that Moses puts here in recording the exact calendar days. When the flood began, it took 150 days for them to reach their height. Roughly five months and then we see that it took another five months or so for the waters to recede, enough for Noah to, to be able to open the window and check around. Friends, that's roughly ten months locked up in the darkness in the thick, thick still air of the ark. Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, and, and a complete menagerie of the world's animals, birds, and creepy crawlers. Can you imagine the internal struggle going on? Did Moses perhaps begin to think, God, where are you? I cry to you by night. In anguish, I'm waiting in silence for your answer. We have no indication at all that God was revealing himself to Noah. Noah was literally and spiritually left in the dark. But we know, right, from our perspective as readers of the text, that God remembered Noah. Even though Noah wasn't aware of it, the truth of the matter is that at the heart of Noah's darkness in chapter 8, verse 1, right at the center of those 10 months, God was there. And friends, the Bible is so clear throughout the rest of Scripture. So too is God with those of us who are his children. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, even when it seems like there's nothing good going on around us. Look at Noah's faithfulness in the midst of silence he's stranded atop mount ararat and at the end of 40 days noah decides to finally open up a window and see what he can make of the situation he sends out a raven sees it just flying around due to the water not yet fully receded he also sends out a dove for what seems to be a total of three journeys the last journey the dove never comes back he's checking to see if the waters are really drying up But I think verses 6 through 12 are also showing us the faithful patience of Noah as he waited for God's deliverance. There's a rising monotony as we read it, right? There's a monotony to it all as he waited for what seems to be another 54 days or so on this ark. Again, we see Noah's faithfulness, but we see his faithfulness in his patient waiting. This is Noah's endurance. There's no word from the Lord, but nonetheless, Noah perseveres. His his faith in God holds on, even in the monotony of his tough situation. Noah cannot find solid ground enough to stand on, and yet he still hopes in God. Alas, God's silence was not to last forever. God's gracious leading breaks into Noah's silent situation in verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. The repetition that we read here is, I think, Moses slowing the reader down. It's like a director using a, a slow-motion edit in the film to, to, you know, introduce something epic. Remember, uh, uh, what was that movie? Um, uh, gosh, I mean, there's a million movies. Um, I, yeah, that, that's a good one. Chariots of Fire, where they're running slowly, and it's just an epic moment, uh, moment in the film. I think that's what Moses is doing here. Uh, It's this epic slow motion. This epic slow motion exit of Noah and his family and all the animal kingdom behind him as they leave the ark and and now go to repopulate the world. Why the epic slow motion? I think Moses is, is wanting us to see Noah here as a new Adam. This is epic because this is brand new the new man who will, as Noah's name indicates, bring humanity rest from the curse of the ground. What indications are there that Moses sees Noah as a new Adam, now entering into a a kind of new creation? Well, first, remember we saw that Noah walked with God? Uh, This harkens back to the days when Adam walked in the Garden of Eden where God would walk. Second. God's work of ordering and shaping the creation occurred when the earth was covered in a watery chaos. So too now after the watery chaos of the flood, a new beginning begins to take shape as the waters recede and the ground emerges. Remember how in Genesis 1 it said that the Spirit hovered over the waters just before God brought order? Well, we see the same thing here in verse 1 where Moses writes that God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters receded. That word wind is the same word used for spirit. Again, Moses is linking this account to Genesis 1, recreating the world. In Genesis 1, God created the birds and the creeping things and the animals to flourish and multiply on the earth. After the flood, the birds, creeping things, and animals again uh, again begin to repopulate, propagate the earth. In the beginning, God created the sun and the moon to distinguish day from night and and to establish seasons of the year. Well, after the flood, what do we see promised in verse 22? The regular pattern of the natural world would resume in seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. In Genesis 1, Adam and Eve were blessed by God and enjoined to be fruitful and multiply So too with Noah. Look there in chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 7. God blesses him, and the same command is issued afresh. Mankind is still called to be fruitful and multiply. In light of this, just as Adam and Eve were were given dominion over the world, they were to rule over God's creation and all the animals as vice-regents, well, God reinstates that rule with Noah, revealing there in chapter 9, verse 2, That animals, birds, and fish are all still under the rule of human beings. Animals will fear mankind as humanity continues to rule on behalf of God. In Genesis 1, God provided for humanity by giving them food to eat. All the vegetation and fruits were to be enjoyed by Adam and Eve. In this new world, though, the provision for food, it's reiterated. See that in verse 3? But now that provision included the consumption of animals. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. We wonder, though, don't we? Has the image of God in man now perhaps been completely lost? Did sin corrupt mankind so much that God's image in them perhaps went out like a weak flame on a candle? No. God teaches Noah that human beings are still made in his image they all still retain the value of personhood and that all people are still made in the image of God. Look at verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed because God made man in his own image. In other words, God is telling Noah, yes, you are again like Adam, meant to rule over my created order. And all people after you, they too still have my image in them. They have value. Even the least among you, the least cherished, all human beings have value made in the image of God. But let's get something clear. It's as if God says, I need to remind you of this, Noah, because unlike the original Adam, sin now pulses through your veins. The the same sin that made Cain's blood boil will make your blood boil. And just because I've reestablished mankind as a king over my creation, that does not mean you can kill people. Look at verse 5. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. We need to note here, at least in passing, that it seems that God is instituting human government, introducing the concept of government in order to protect men and women from being victimized. Three times God said, I will require a reckoning. God is authorizing here human beings to use force against one another in the face of injustice, which is the foundation for any understanding of government. It is, as Paul would later put it, the authority of the sword against those who would take life in an unjust way. This is God's common grace in establishing justice among human society. Paul, later in Romans 13, will put it this way, government is a minister of God for your good. It does not bear the sword in vain, but rightly carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We'll look at this a lot more in the coming weeks. What we want to be sure we see here, though, is that Noah really is a new kind of Adam. We'll see this next week. Noah, like Adam, will immediately begin to build a garden. He's a worker of the ground, a new Adam who will live and work and even fall into sin like Adam in the garden. But perhaps here's the most interesting connection between Noah and Adam. We see Noah as a new Adam in that God reestablishes the covenant he made with Adam, now again with Noah. What do I mean? Why do I say reestablish? Well, first, we see God establish a covenant with Noah back in chapter 6, verse 18. Did you notice that? We read it last week, but I didn't comment too much on it. There, God says, I will establish my covenant with you, And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And we see God resume that same language here again in chapter 9, verses 8 and following. See that? Then God said to Noah and to his sons, verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And look, there at verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the flood. It's incredibly significant that Moses uses the word establish because it is not the normal word used for making a new covenant. Now, the Hebrew word for covenant is the word berit. And whenever we see God make a new covenant with someone, the language used is that of God cutting a covenant. Or as the Hebrew says, karat berit, to cut a covenant. But what Moses right here writes here is not karat berit. He doesn't cut a covenant. No, he says, God, Chakim Berit. He establishes a covenant. Why is that significant? In every usage of the word covenant in Scripture, when we read that God cuts a covenant, it's showing us that a new covenant is being initiated. Or the language of cut refers to the practice of cutting an animal in half as a symbol for what the covenant or or the agreed-upon promises will entail. If one or another party in this covenant agreement doesn't hold up their half of the promise, let them die like this cut-in-half animal. So when we see a covenant being cut, a new covenant is being initiated. Uh, the, The dotted line is being signed for the first time. But whenever we see the language of Chakim Berit, of establishing a covenant, it always refers to a covenant partner upholding or fulfilling a covenant that was already made. To establish a covenant means to keep the promises established in a previously cut covenant. We'll see this pattern again in Genesis with Abraham. Genesis 15, God will cut a covenant with Abraham. But then later in chapter 17, the language God will use in describing the obligations of that exact same covenant is to establish it. God will reestablish or uphold the earlier covenant And he uses the same words used here, Hakim Barit. What this means is that God is not initiating something brand new here with Noah, but he's reestablishing and upholding for Noah and his descendants a commitment he made earlier. It's language that points us to see God's covenant made earlier with humanity at creation. In other words, when God says that he is confirming or upholding his covenant with Noah, he's saying that his commitment to his creation, the the care of the creator to preserve, provide for, and rule over all that he has made, including all the blessings he pronounced upon Adam and Eve, are now again with Noah and all his descendants. Think about that. The entrance of sin into the world, and, and the destruction that followed by the judgment of God's flood, all of that ultimately did not ruin what God had originally designed. God's plan for creation, God's design for humanity, all of it could not be thwarted, and in the end, God will get his way. As we sang, God will reign. God will reign. Friends, there's a truth here for us. Is not God working out all things for our good? And look at this. Even when sin seems to be destroying things in our own lives on all sides, and when the hand of God's discipline seems too heavy to bear at times, and and nothing's going to be the same anymore because of sin or because of judgment, in the end, God's design for your life will still be accomplished. This is not an encouragement to sin. Don't hear me encouraging that. No. No. Uh, But this is an encouragement that even in the midst of our sin, I know that God would make us better fit to kill sin and avoid all temptation. But even in the midst of those moments where sin is tripping us up and tripping us up and tripping us up, friends, if you are in Christ, God is even working out all of those things for your good. The argument here is from the general to the particular. If God in general... Will not let sin destroy humanity entirely. And God, in his righteous anger, will not say, Ah, I'm done with them all. How much more so for those of us who are now found in Christ? Will not God, in fatherly love, bring us up off of our knees with their sin stained cuts and scrapes, and in particular, grace equip us to keep on persevering? We see God's faithfulness here. God did not give up on humanity. And how much more so will he not give up on his children, those purchased by the blood of Christ? What was the nature of God's covenant reestablished with Noah? Well, I think we see some incredible things here as we come to an end. The fundamental feature of the covenant with Noah was God's promise to preserve the human race, signaled no doubt by God's protecting Noah and his family in the ark. But God gives an incredible promise here. Look at at chapter 8, verse 21. That as long as human life continues, the ground will never again be cursed as it was in the flood. Life will continue on in the regular seasons that God has ordained. Seasons that humanity will, will be able to enjoy. In chapter 9, verses 9 and following, we see that the promises isn't just for Noah but for all humanity and every living creature. He says, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And what would the sign of this promise be? Verse 12 and following. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Here is God's self-motivated promise of unconditional mercy throughout the rest of human history. God was clear back in chapter 8, verse 21. He says it, Even after the fall, still the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood did not wash away sin, right? It washed away sinners, but it did not wash away sin. But here God promises afresh, no matter how evil humanity is and how populated the world will become with these sinners, God's common grace will continue. Rains will fall and help harvests grow. The sun will rise. The seasons will turn. And God will allow his image bearers, broken as they are, to still flourish and enjoy the good things of life. And a rainbow will be our reminder. A sacrament in the sky declaring to us that God so loves the world. In fact, I I think we can say that God did, in fact, send his judgment into the world another time, right? A wrath worse than that of the Genesis flood, but a wrath that carried within it God's eternal love as well. It was there upon the cross where God's son hung, he bearing the full flood of God's hate for a humanity still given over to evil. The rainbow of God's covenant reestablished with Noah, a reminder that God's wrath gave way to peace, was a sacrament that pointed forward to Jesus Christ where God's wrath would be propitiated by the Prince of Peace. Friends, that is a truth that this story points us forward to, and calls us to trust in more and more. Let's do that and pray.
1: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the source and the center of all history, In this recreation account of Noah and the flood, you are the focus. You take action. You pour out judgment, and you remembered Noah. You have displayed your wrath and grace for the world to see. Also, we still have your symbol of the rainbow in the sky. We thank you for that. Though many have seen it, it can only be understood as you intended through your word. Likewise, through your word, we understand that Noah received grace through the future work of Christ. That same grace is available to us today. We know that your wrath against sin is still present, active and pending. We also know that your promise to save and sustain us is everlasting because you've proven it through history. You will not forget those who believe in you and call on your name because you are perfectly faithful. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we close our service? and close our